So today is the final week of our series, uh, Game of Thrones. We've been looking through the kings of the Bible, and that's just been a blast. Um, I haven't really been about too much, as I kind of mentioned last week, because uh, uh, birth of my, my, my second daughter, um, Aria. Yeah, she's, she's really cool. So if I look today, like I've been out on a bender the night before, I haven't. Um, I wish I had. <laughs> my head would be hurting, at least there'd be a reason for it, other than sleep deprivation and that kind of torture um, but yeah we're going to get things kind of moving today so through the course of this series we've looked at a couple of different kings and different perspectives on them and I felt like today what I wanted to do was I wanted to revisit David and the reason I want to revisit David is because when David was here and spoke on David um, David absolutely killed it and did a great 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 job but I thought I want to look at some of the the, 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 the dirtier side to David that connects with the Game of Thrones kind of series in a few different areas. He smashed it and I was so blessed by his talk, but it then inspired me to reconnect with David's story again and want to look at a few other things. So when we first see David, he's in the field. So David is in the field and he is looking after uh, his dad's sheep and he's a shepherd. And the picture we get of David and that we start to get as we kind of read his story and the dialogue and the way he describes himself to King Saul before he goes to fight Goliath um, and the, how we find out what he's doing when the prophet Samuel comes to anoint a king in Israel to replace Saul. We hear David's in the field. He, he's with the sheep. He's forgotten by his own dad. I mean, that's a crazy scenario. When someone comes and says someone from your family is going to be king and he sees all the boys and goes, it's none of these guys. Have you got another one? He's like, no. Oh, wait a sec. Yeah, David's in the field. I mean, that's that's a pretty crazy story for someone that God would choose to be king. Someone that his own father would kind of forget in a big occasion like that. That's pretty, pretty crazy. Um, so like David starts off his life and his road to becoming king with no ratings. Hashtag no ratings. That's, that's David's life. No ratings by his own dad. All the other boys are lined up. This one, this one, this one in order of ratings. David's completely forgotten about. He's in the field and he's looking after the sheep. But there's a great thing about looking after the sheep and risking your life for the sheep is it gives you a certain perspective on life and David has I'm going to look at two perspectives that David has within his life and his kingship and what we can learn from both those perspectives so when Saul gets it so horribly wrong the thing that God communicates to him is he makes it clear I'm going to go find a king who's after my own heart and when he says that he's saying that at a specific moment in time and at that moment in time David is a guy looking after sheep And David is a guy who risks his life fighting lions and bears to protect sheep. So if we think that God picks a man after his own heart, when we look at David at that moment in time, he is a man after God's own heart. Because what does God's son do? I am the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. So when we look at David, he's a man after God's own heart because he's risking his life constantly for the sheep, just sheep. Jesus comes, God comes in the form of flesh and blood, Jesus Christ, gives his life for the sheep. So David is a man after God's own heart, and the perspective he has is so unique in the field. But even though he has this particular perspective that is so powerful and so wonderful, society, even in his day, doesn't really appreciate the perspective of someone who lays their life down or risks their life for sheep. It's a, it's a low-level kind of menial kind of job. It's not one you get ratings for. It's not one where a promotion becomes available and they think, oh, yeah, that geezer in the field. 
you know, the nutter who took on a bear the other day um, with his bare hands. Like, mm, yeah, no, he's not the guy you really pick for that, that CEO position. And so David doesn't get those ratings. But you see, if you want to do something great in life, you have to look after the sheep. That's a conversation Jesus has with Peter after he denied him three times when Jesus comes back from the dead. He has that conversation with Peter about, about looking after the sheep. Do you love me? Yes. Look after the sheep. Look after my little ones. All that kind of stuff. What we find in the advice people give us, if we want to do something great, people say, you have to be dedicated in doing the small things. We hear it all the time. Be dedicated, be diligent in the small things, and then you'll be good with the big things. But that isn't the story of David. That is not the story of David. That isn't the message. And I don't believe that's God's message for anybody. That's me personally. Disagree with it. That's cool. Whatever. I'm comfortable in my own skin and, and I'll throw it down. What I believe it is, is I believe we're to be diligent in the small thing because that's the great thing. And it's not about elevating up to the next big thing. Like I do the small thing here and now really well because the big thing later is coming and I'm saving myself for that. That's not greatness. God chooses David to be king. He's a man after his own heart because the sheep matters so much, he will lay his life down for it. And when you have someone like that, you have someone who's like God. And when you have someone like that and they carry that attitude into being a king where they lay their life down for the people, then you have a king and a leader who's after God's own heart. And that's someone that's special. And so like when we talk about something being a stepping stone to greatness and doing something small diligently, like, man, I'm, that's, that's a fresh, hot, steamy pile of turd in a field somewhere. That is disgusting. That, that isn't what it's about. It's about being diligent in the small thing. That's a beautiful fragrance. Just because greatness is doing something great regardless of how big and how small it is. Um, that's what makes Jon Snow great in Game of Thrones. Like, in the last episode, one of the things he was saying... You ain't seen it? I'm sorry, man. If you didn't watch it before you came to church, we were doing a series on Game of Thrones, man. You made a mistake. You made a mistake. One of the lines he says is he says, I didn't choose to be king. I didn't ask to be king. You made me king. It's going to be okay. That's what he says. So his attitude is like, I didn't choose this. I didn't chase this. You made me it. Jon Snow's in some ways a bit of a David he just cares about the people and cares about doing the right thing and governing well and that's what makes him great and that's what makes David great and that is what can make you and I great is when we care so much about the people rather than what we see and what I've seen in places that I've worked people trampling over one another to get to the top that's not David that's dead and so what we find with David is he has this really unique perspective and when it comes to facing Goliath we see that perspective in probably the greatest Bible put down of all time, where he's standing there, all the man them are shook, uh, Goliath standing there, and the reason everyone's shook isn't just because of Goliath's size, there's also a, 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 like a Cold War arms race, the Philistines now have bronze weapons, the Israelites don't, they don't even really have weapons, and so when they're standing there, everyone's scared because they're like, look at his armor, look at the weapons they have, they have superior firepower, we can't hope to win this war, we can't hope to win this battle. And then the dude is an absolute giant, um, as well as the tactical advantage. And so they're really scared. But David has a really unique perspective because he spent his whole life being not really that big, not that dench, but being out in the field fighting lions and bears. And he has a heart after God's, 
And so what he does is when he sees this guy and everyone's fearful and everyone's talking about it and no one wants to step to him, no one wants to step up and move to this guy, David's like, what? This uncircumcised Philistine? Come on, man, this is the army of the Lord. Like, it's not about who we are, what we have, what weapons we have, anything like that. This is the Lord's army. Who does this uncircumcised Philistine think he is? Oh, man, I just love that put down. I just love the fact that you're facing someone with superior weapons and you're thinking about whether they've got snipped or not. You know what I mean? That's a unique kind of perspective you can only get when you've been a shepherd with sheep in the field. That's the only kind of perspective you can have when you look after these sheep diligently before God, taking the position you have as so powerful and wonderful, you will risk your entire life for something this small that then when you see something so big in front of you, it doesn't matter because it's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's the same attitude. And so when David looks at him, he's like, you guys are seeing the strength of their weaponry. You're seeing the strength of his height. I'm seeing the weakness under his loins. This guy's snipped, guys. He hasn't, he hasn't surrendered himself to God in the most vulnerable, painful part of his being. He, he hasn't surrendered to God. This guy's weak, and I can see the weakness, and he's an uncircumcised Philistine. And the guys would have been like, what the hell are you talking about, David? <laughs> like, rah, David rags us on, yeah? Cool. All right, David, you, you can go for it. By the way, David, if you do go for it, you'll get loads of riches. And David's that's already his focus. He chats to Saul about it, because Saul starts hearing there's only one person in the whole nation that wants to fight this dude. And David's in there again saying the whole uncircumcised Philistine thing. He's focused on that. He's focused on the guy's weakness and on God being his strength. And that's how David defeats Goliath. And it's all about perspective. You see, if you keep that perspective of God being top, then it doesn't matter about the strength of the opposition in the scenario that is against you. It's about the strength that you have with you and that God is for you. So what we look at is we look at David, the perspective he has in the field looking after the sheep. We have his perspective when he's under fire and when his life is in danger again with a situation that no one in the whole nation wants. But there takes a huge shift in David's life because David becomes king. He does a great job as king and he's leading and he's ruling the nation. But there's there's a huge change that takes place. From my my window of my apartment where my wife and I, my, my, my two daughters live, you look straight out and uh, hey, two. But, 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 but. Don't know. you look straight out the window and you can see the shard you can see the shard a couple of you guys have been to my house seen the balcony and the view you can see the shard quite clearly this little thing in the, in the distance um, and that's the view from my, my, my peasantry I mean my place is lovely and I love it but like when you think about the shard I mean we're talking about something quite special there aren't we we're talking about apartments that start at like around about 50 million pounds so like compared to them I'm, I'm just a, a peasant pagan on road so there's this 50 million pound apartments that haven't been sold, um, but they're the, they're the only apartments in the whole of the capital that can see the sea on a clear, clear day. They have a sea view on a clear day. Did you know that? You're in your apartment, you can see the sea. What sea? Don't know. I'm guessing the one around this island that we live on. <laughs> I'm what side, isn't it? Yeah, I'm get- oh, I, I, guess, I guess it depends which side you face. I mean, obviously, if you're facing north, I'm guaranteeing you don't have a sea view. Because if you see past Scotland, then that would be really impressive. But, I mean, I think, yeah, I think maybe three of the four sides probably have it. Um, but, yeah, you can see the sea on a clear day from London. Only the top 1% earners in Britain could afford to live at the Shard. The top 1% earn around about between generally £162,000 to £267,000 a year. 
Um, but funnily enough, recently they've described they don't feel rich because they rub shoulders with the super rich, the 0.1%. And the 0.1% start earning from around about £990,000 a year. And some of them are worth tens of millions. But you see, the Shard isn't even built for the 0.1% of London because London's an international city. So actually, the Shard was built for the wealthiest across the whole of the globe to buy property and never live in it or to be in it from time to time to have crazy, crazy uh, money. Mark Golding, the chief executive of Oxfam, uh, told The Guardian, this year's snapshot of inequality is clearer, more accurate and more shocking than ever before. It is beyond grotesque that a group of men, eight, who could easily fit in a single golf buggy own more than the poorest half of the world. Eight people own more wealth than the poorest 3.6 billion. Eight. Eight. Like eight. We could have them around that table there. And they could have room together. And they have more wealth than 3.6 billion people. And that's the view from the Shard. And the view from the Shard, it changes everything. Because you become so detached from peasant pagans like myself. And you become so detached from people past me on the scale who are in serious, serious need. You're so detached from the realities that people face. And um, that's kind of what happens with David. And that's also what happens in Game of Thrones. You've got King's Landing, the view from King's Landing. You've got um, the Lannisters there (laughs) covering your ears, uh, who throughout the many seasons of Game of Thrones have just used people and allowed them to die and be killed in the most brutal, horrific ways of abusing people for their own selfish gains. And that actually, as graphic as it is on there, we watch it and go, oh, we've left all those times behind, but we haven't. When eight people can sit having that much wealth, knowing people die of starvation every day and know that their bank account could change it like that, they could solve many of the major issues in the world, but they don't and they go to sleep at night with a really great view. When that can happen, you're actually just as barbaric as the kings in Game of Thrones. And what happens with David is he has a view not from the Shard, not from King's Landing. David has a view from the palace roof. And so in the Bible, what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 11 is at the time of year kings go out to war, David sent Joab. So at the time of year when people are going out to fight, and the sheep are going out to fight, there's been a role reversal in David. David's changed. His perspective has changed. David was a man in the field who laid his life down for the sheep. Now David sends the sheep to lay their life down for him. He's bought into something that isn't of the heart of God anymore. Because Jesus came, God came flesh and blood, the good shepherd, and laid his life down for his sheep. David switches it round And he sends General Joab with the guys to fight for him. And it says, David stayed at Jerusalem. And David was on the palace and could oversee pretty much the whole city. He had a splendid palace, a great view. It was a bit like the Shard for his his period of time. And David's walking on the roof and it says that he saw a lady bathing, Bathsheba, and that she was beautiful. And in the Hebrew, there's different words for beauty. And this most of the time when the word is used beautiful it's talking about more than just the outward appearance and this time it's completely just about the outward appearance that's not to say she isn't beautiful on the inside but it's making it clear that David's agenda is totally different and the thing is about what she's doing is the 
the way that it tells us it in their culture and how they would have read it and understood this particular moment is when she's bathing in the manner that she was bathing in, it was like a ritual cleansing. It would mean that she kind of just come off her, her, her period and she was now cleansing herself to become clean again according to the law in like Leviticus. And so that is why when the Bible then lets us know what happens later, which is David takes her, she comes over, they bow to bow, bow, bow to bow, bow, and it says that she is pregnant. She's pregnant. And so we know it's David because she's just done the ritual cleansing. So we know it's not Uriah, her husband's kid. So just reading that passage, we know straight away, okay, she's just come off, so she's not pregnant before. David, bang, she says, I'm pregnant. David's like, well, I know that was going on. So that means it's totally me. People will know it's me because she's doing that out openly, having that, that, that cleansing. So this is a problem. Pretty much most of the men are out at war fighting. And I, I've done this. I'm in a bit of a pickle. So what does he do? He sends a messenger and he goes, hey, could you go get her husband Uriah from the battlefield? David knew Uriah really well. Uriah was one of David's mighty men and within his top 32 um, soldiers, most loyal and fearful soldiers. Really talented guy in the art of fighting, probably a UFC fighter, something like that. He's a Hittite. The Hittites aren't Israelites. Uh, They're one of the local nations around them that they have a really good relationship with. And obviously Uriah has made himself loyal to them and joined in with their culture. And so the letter is sent to Joab and Joab gets him and he sends him and he comes back and then David just goes and gets him smashed. And the reason David is getting him absolutely hammered is because there is a part of the the law where you wouldn't become unclean while you're at war because you wouldn't want to do anything that could jeopardize your victory in the way that their mindset and the culture of the times. So Uriah wouldn't have been able to just go home and go, oh, I'm local. Let me go home, be with my wife. We'll have some amazing, yeah, like Barry Manilow, whatever. Whoa, we're going to get things on. We're going to, yeah, you know, get freaky with you, whatever, all that stuff. So wouldn't be able to do that because he'd know I'm not going to put my boys' lives in danger on the battlefield. I may not be on the battlefield, but I'm just as united with them here as I am there. And so he gets sloshed and David goes, go home, be with your wife. Have a great evening giving him the thumbs up. David wakes up, looks outside. Uriah is camping out in a tent in front of the palace. And David's like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. So he gets even more alcohol. He gets him completely, like the guy could barely stand up now. And he goes, hey, Uriah, whoa, party on, dude. Go, be with your wife. Yeah, have a great night, whoa. Uriah's like, whoa. And then David wakes up thinking, oh, it's all over. Looks out, oh, he's still outside in the tent. And Uriah's like, My brothers are fighting, risking their lives. I am as much with them here as I am there. That's the message of what he's saying when he says, how could I go home being my wife? My brothers are dying on the field. And so then David does this thing where he goes, okay, I'm going to send you back to the battlefield. And he writes a letter. Dear General Joab, please send Uriah the Hittite to the front of the fiercest part of the battle and then pull the troops back and withdraw them. Love, David. And then he gives a sealed note to Uriah, who takes it to the battlefield, hands over his own death warrant to General Joab, who does as David says, and Uriah dies. But then General Joab has to send a messenger back to David, and he's like, well, David, you just need to know some stuff. Like, a good group of your mighty men, your, your, your boys, are dead. And he says to the messenger, just in case he gets angry, just let him know Uriah is dead. And so David goes, oh, you know, don't let this displease you. Don't get down about it. You know, these things happen. He probably would have died on another day. 
you know, it's war. He'd have died in battle at some point, you know. Who cares? You can hear the Lannisters in Game of Thrones from King's Landing, just sending people out. <laughs> you can hear it. That's the view from the Lannisters from King's Landing. That's the view from the Shard. Who cares? I've got all this money. I earned it. I can't really hear the people who are starving to death around the world that I could solve the problems for today. I'm going to sleep nice in this luxury mattress. That's kind of what's going on. And this is David now. He's become a part of that. He's gone from laying his life down from the sheep to the sheep dying for him. And so what happens is, after seven days of mourning, which is their custom, he takes Bathsheba to be his own wife. And so he's moving on with his life and everything's pretty great. But then a prophet called Nathan comes along and he says, hey, David, I've got a really big problem. I just need your wisdom on this, David. I need you to help me solve this because this is a madness, David. Listen to this. There's a guy who has this little pet lamb. I mean, it's beautiful. You should see it, man. You should see it. It's all over Instagram. It's trending. It's just so cute. And, and this little lamb is going about. It follows him everywhere. It even lays at his feet and stuff. Lays at his feet. That's kind of a weird picture. It's like a really intimate picture in their culture. And um, lays at his feet. Like He loves it as if it's family. That's what he's saying. It's like it's his family, like his kid or like his his loved one and um, well this guy he, he has a boss and the boss kind of goes like I've got some friends coming around to eat today you know what I like my cattle I'm not going to sacrifice any of them I'm going to take this lamb and I'm going to chop it up into little pieces and I'm going to cook it and they have a great meal and then the guy comes home and he looks and he doesn't hear any bleating it's not running out to the gate to see him and he's freaking out and he's looked everywhere and then he finds out that his boss is, has, has eaten eaten like his family an animal he loves so much. And he goes, David, what should, we, what should be done with such a guy? And David just goes mental. He sees with anger. He's like saying, this guy, man, he's got to get what's coming to him. This guy's got to die for this. This is, this, is, this, is, this is disgusting. This is disgraceful. And then Nathan goes, David, you are that man. You killed Uriah. You took Uriah's wife. If you'd wanted more, I would have given you more. And then he goes on to say what will happen to his family. He says, the sword will never leave your family. Your firstborn son that you have with Bathsheba will die. All these things will go on. And we follow the story of David and so much suffering happens in his life. He has a son called Absalom who sees one of his daughters. Here's one of his daughters. His sister has been like, been like uh, abused, been violated. And he's so angry and David sits back and doesn't do anything. And so Absalom takes it into his own hands. He starts losing respect for his, his father, David. The whole breakdown in that part of the family. Absalom tries to overthrow David. He goes around shaking people's hands everywhere, doing the, like, the, the Jeremy Corbyn, going to every street, shaking people's hands, telling them exactly what they want to hear. Oh, we'll give you all this great stuff. You can have extra days off. You can do all this kind of thing. The days off one for me was like a hashtag begging it a little bit. Um, I'm not slating Corbyn, cool, nice guy, but that's what politicians do, don't they? They all come out at that time of year and they all want to promise the world and give you everything and like, yeah, man, I'll give you a new TV if you want. You know what I mean? It's just like crazy. The, the lengths they'll go. And Absalom did that. He said, What's your problem, Apollo? And Apollo would go, oh, this guy, Andy, he's been a real jerk to me. And he goes, no way. I hear what you're saying. If, I, if only I were a judge in the land, I would deal with this Andy for you. And then he'd come to me and go, hey, Andy, how you doing? Go, oh, this guy, Apollo, man, he's doing my head in, really doing all this stuff to me. No way. If only I were a judge in the land, I would definitely rule in your favor and deal with this Apollo. He goes around the whole country doing that. He gets the country on his side, creates a civil war, tries to kill his own father. 
and then he dies in battle. And then the news comes back to David that his son Absalom has died. And then Absalom, uh, David breaks down and says, Absalom, oh Absalom, if only I died in your place. And just a completely broken man. And all of this stuff didn't need to happen. None of it needed to happen. All the stuff they went through as a family, all the things that happened to David, all the stuff that happened to the, to the nation, all the people that suffered as a result, none of it had to happen. But it all happened... It's not necessarily because, I'm not even going to say just because of Bathsheba and, and what happened there. It happened because his perspective changed long before he ever saw her. His perspective took a shift from a man who laid his life down for his sheep to a man who lays the sheep down for himself. And when he took that shift, he stopped being a man after God's own heart for a period. And God had to bring him back through Nathan. And David did, like all of us, had that amazing opportunity. And he repented and he... He connected with God again today. So why are we talking about all of this? Well, I'm going to sum it up and I'm going to kind of finish in a second. But it's as simple as this. I believe that God wants to call you and I to have a heart after his own heart. He wants us to live a life where we don't just push our own objectives first to the disregard of everything in the world around us. That whether we have a lot or we don't have a lot, we are people who get involved in the wider story of humanity and the, the problems that we can solve. We don't, we aren't, no one here, I believe, is one of the eight people in the world. We can't just click our fingers and solve it, but every single one of us can play a part in it, whether it's globally, as in locally in our community, and globally through sponsoring something on the other side of the world, giving them that opportunity. There's so many things that you and I can do, and we need to be people that don't just look for the next paycheck for ourselves and items that we want, but pass that to the wider humanity, that we aren't people who are switched off, having a view from the shard so disconnected, um, because... You may not believe this, but all of us in this room are close to, if not in the top 1% when we speak internationally, um, which sounds crazy, but that is how disparaging the, the, the group is. And so we have to be people like David initially that lay our lives down for the sheep, people who think outwardly and that we don't lose our way and lose our perspective. The example we have with God is he didn't withhold his own son and he gave him for us all. That you and I not just could have forgiveness of sins, but he said that he's reconciling all things to himself. God isn't just about uh, the eternal perspective, but the here and now. He cares about the here and now. And he called you and I to be agents of change within the local community and in the global community around us. As a church, I'm really excited that we've started doing our... Uh, our latest community project where we're trying to turn free roadmen into entrepreneurs and that started I met with them I'm going to be meeting again in the next week or two to have our second conversation about what brand they want to design and stuff like that it's a really exciting time um, and to be part of City Hill I'm really happy these guys are really really cool and hopefully later next year we'll do like a class of eight or something of their youngers and that would be so 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 awesome um, I believe that God is a God who sees the potential in every single one of us I believe God is a God who doesn't write anyone else but I also believe God is a God who empowers us to be people that pour ourselves out for others if we don't we don't know Jesus end of um, I'm going to pray for us today and then that'll be it for this series Father God I thank you for your faithfulness towards us I thank you for your goodness I thank you that you pour out your spirit upon us not that we could just feel good about ourselves and have a great time but that we can be agents of change within our community. I thank you that there was a man who risked his life for the sheep, fighting lions and bears to protect them, but also then became a man who risked his life for a nation to fight a giant and take him on head on. He wouldn't back down because of what would have happened to his people. They would have been enslaved by the Philistines and, and their women would have been taken. It would have been a terrible, terrible time of suffering in that nation, but he stepped up to the plate. Father, would we be people that step up to the plate for those who are oppressed around us, people in our communities that we know are in need, doing whatever little we can or whatever big thing we can. 
may we also be people that are there emotionally and spiritually for people that are just going through mad times because father we know that you give us peace that surpasses understanding i pray that we will be people that acknowledge the greatness of what we actually have and not people that wait for us to have more to give because people who think like that never give anything to your cause or to the community around us. Maybe people understanding the value of what we can give. Father, I pray you'd empower us, you'd inspire us, help us to be like David, that we wouldn't be afraid to take on the challenges that we encounter in our workplace, in our community, in our families, in our nation and around the world. Um, I just pray you'd be with us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So that's the end of our series, Game of Thrones. Next week, we start a new...